and welcome to Washoe Bursting Perspectives, our continuing series of podcasts to help you understand key issues at the intersection of law and business. Today we will look at the EB-5 program with Michael Zuckerman of counsel at the New York-based law firm Washoe Burstein. I'm Tom Merriam. Michael Zuckerman, can you tell us how the EB-5 program works? The EB-5 program was created in 1990. It was established to find a way to promote jobs in the United States, and they created a program whereby people could get a green card and permanent residency by investing $500,000 or a million dollars, and if they put up this million dollars or $500,000, they would get permanent residency. The requirements of the government were that in the creation of the program, because they wanted job creation, they had to prove that there would be 10 jobs for every either million or $500,000 created. The 10 jobs was to be substantiated by a, uh, an economic study performed by labor, labor economists. And, um, and that has been the program since 1990. This, the program precedes a person who wants to um, secure financing, goes to a syndicator with someone who is uh, familiar with the program, who raises the money, he goes overseas and gets people who want to get green cards and permanent residence in the United States, solicits them, and they have to fill out a whole bunch of forms and comply with the uh, immigration requirements. And then in exchange for that, they get their permanent residency. Uh, the program requires that the investors are solicited pursuant to a private placement memorandum. And the private placement memorandum is delivered to the foreign country. The investors review the private placement memorandum, and then they put up their money. Most of the time, they're not interested in the economics of the transaction. They really are interested in just getting their permanent residency and green card. However, they do get some small economics from the, from the transaction that's developed. Generally, these transactions have been real estate transactions. Generally, they have been real estate transactions in um, projects that are job creators, primarily hotels and senior housing facilities, because the dollars spent in those kinds of projects generate more jobs. Over the past few years, some of these projects have moved into, if they're large projects, into residential apartments and into condominiums, but still the largest use of the program has been hotels and senior housing facilities. The program is now in its, uh, it started in 1990, so it's now 27 years. Uh, through the first, um, I would say, 18 years, there was not a lot of people using the program. I, as a lawyer, was representing a client who was one of the first people into the program. He did a hotel deal in 1990, which was one of the first programs, one of the first projects ever done under the EB-5 program. And then I represented him for a number of years. And then he stopped doing it around 2000, 2001, because the program just didn't seem to have legs. And then around 2008, with the problems in the market created by the, um, the severe recession that took place in 2008, this was looked at as a way to generate 
financing for projects where there was no other sort of financing. So starting in 2009, the program started to become much more active. Through 2012, there was probably only about a billion dollars done of EB-5 financing. Starting in 2012, it started to really take um, and start to move forward. And during 2012 and 2013, there was an economic study performed by the immigration agencies of the United States government along with some statistical support. And during that two-year period, somewhere around $5.8 billion was raised and it generated something like 300,000 plus jobs. The program was generating for every investor that came in and invested $500,000. The minimum requirement was 10 jobs per $500,000, but it seemed to generate on average about 16 jobs for every $500,000. Over the last four years, the program has gone to the maximum amount of EB-5 visas, which is 10,000, and based upon that, there has been approximately $3.5 billion raised every year, and that has generated over 100,000 jobs. So today, the program has raised something in excess of $20.5 billion, and it's generated over 700,000 jobs. Michael Zuckerman, can you tell us how the EB-5 program works? Yes. What happens is the investor goes into a pro, into a generally into a partnership and the syndicator or the developer takes a partnership and that partnership becomes an investor in the project. So let's just assume that we're going to have an LLC, a limited liability company, that's going to be the owner of the project. One of the members of the limited liability company will be the limited li limited partnership where all of the EB-5 investors are. They come into the project in a number of ways, but the most common ways, they can come in either as a senior debt provider, where they're gonna provide the first mortgage. Most of them are coming in as a mezzanine provider, so they're coming in into a second position as a, as a mezzanine provider, and occasionally they come in as common equity. But generally the transaction is, is structured around the EB-5 limited partnership coming into the existing limited liability company and taking the role of a capital source. And most of the time it's done as a mezzanine financing. What changes can we expect to see in EB-5? Um, the changes are that presently the requirements are that you have a $500,000 investment. Well, let me back up a second. The requirement is that you put up a million dollars and exchange the million dollars, you have to have 10 jobs. If you invest in a rural area or in a census tract that has more than 150% of the average national unemployment, the national unemployment today is 4.1%. So if you go into a census tract and it has over 6.2%, then you can invest in that census tract. And in that census tract or surrounding census tracts, you can invest $500,000 for the 10 jobs. What's happened is there has been some um, liberal review of what that means. Many of the states, in order to get the census tracts, have allowed what we will call gerrymandering. They've taken a bunch of census tracts and put them all together, and then they have met the requirement of 
over 6.2% unemployment or 150%. So for example, there is a project right now that the um, that has gotten some notoriety because of the participation of the um, of the Kushner family, but that building is at 53rd Street and 5th Avenue in Manhattan, and that's surely not a distressed census tract. Um, and, and there have been many buildings done in Manhattan. For example, 157, that magnificent building that's, uh, I think it's either 80 or 90 stories at 57th Street and 7th Avenue. That's anything but a distressed census tract. And that one also qualified because they gerrymandered a bunch of census tracts. So they're going to change that. It's no longer going to be, um, they can put together a number of census tracts in order to meet that qualification. Now it's going to be the exact census tract. And they're talking about maybe you can go one contiguous census tract next to it, and that's about it. So that is going to change. The minimum amount of investment, they are trying to stop, there's been a significant amount of investment in the borough of Manhattan and they're trying to spread it out to get it away from the borough of Manhattan and away from some of the more expensive areas in California because the bulk of the investment has been in California in the high rent districts in California and on Manhattan Island. Better than 50% of the program has been invested in the last three years in those two locations. Um, by raising the amount that would be the minimum investment on Manhattan Island to something like a million or a million and a quarter, that would incentivize the investors to go into other census tracts. So those census tracts would be in smaller cities or in the rural areas, and that would incentivize the employment in those census tracts. And there are a number of other, but those are the two largest. Will we see an expansion of EB-5 as we move into the future? I'm not sure about that. I don't see the government increasing the amount of visas above 10,000. And, and, and the, there is a, um, that is a group that's been lobbying the government to do that. And there's been a lot of pushback because there's been a, a number of cases where there has been fraud alleged um, in misrepresentation of the use of funds, in the misrepresentations of in the private place memorandums, and in how the various people are promoting the program overseas. Um, and they're trying to rein that in and make the execution more efficient. So I don't see, and most of the people don't see them expanding beyond 10,000. Um, what they are doing is they're trying to change it so that um, there won't be as many people coming from China. They want to spread it out to China right now represents close to 80% of the investors and they want to spread it out to other parts of the world. So right now, India has been a very active place. But I think that that's where the changes will be. I don't see them changing the amount that will come in. Thank you, Michael Zuckerman, for enlightening us about EB-5 and Warshaw Bursting Perspectives. Please go to WBNY.com for other Warshaw Bursting Perspectives podcasts and for more information about the Warshaw Bursting Law Firm. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Marion.